invite you to turn in your Bible with me tonight to Psalm 83. Psalm 83, as we're making our way through the Psalms in the summertime. It's a psalm that begins with uh, the author in a great time of fear, desperation, and uh, we're going to see tonight how uh, this psalm, it's, it, might, it might sound inappropriate for New Testament Christians, but we're going to find the gospel is revealed even here. As you know, all roads in the Bible lead to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and, and to the gospel, and tonight we're looking, I'm just looking forward to sharing the gospel again with you. Gospel is, uh, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1, 16, 17, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And that means not just the initial conversion, but it is the power of God all through our Christian life until we are presented in the presence of God. And so tonight we're uh, receiving the power of God again as we uh, open our hearts and ears to uh, receive his good news. Let's uh, turn our attention into Psalm 83, a song of Asaph. And this is what he prays. O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebel and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Asher also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground, Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. Oh my God, make them whirling dust like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Let's bow in prayer. Well, God in heaven, we thank you for your word, and I just ask that your spirit would come tonight and teach us, lead us, guide us in your truth. May our hearts, uh, Lord, just resound with your love for us in Jesus Christ, and, and the fact that, um, Lord, in, in this text here tonight as well, you, you manifest your goodness and grace to us, and we pray that you'd give us eyes and ears to, to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Psalm uh, 83 is a psalm that's easily overlooked. I doubt that many of you have it up on your refrigerator. Uh, I've not seen anything at the local Christian bookstore that has uh, some, Psalm 83 up there. It's, it's a psalm that we maybe even feel a little bit uncomfortable with. It, it, it strikes you maybe as an angry psalm in, in, in some ways. Uh, we're not sure how to interpret this psalm as New Testament Christians uh, but on closer inspection, we're going to see that this is a psalm that uh, it's a prayer that's very relevant, relevant for our day and for our prayers. Uh, as, as American Christians, we are a little bit disadvantaged when it comes to reading a psalm like this. Um, and and it, it's a, maybe a bit difficult for us to 
experience the desperate nature of this prayer. We're, we're used to living in a culture that has, for the history of our country, um, not only accepted Christianity, but has given Christianity sort of a, a, a position of, of privilege uh, and place in the society. Uh, that's, of course, beginning to change, but that was the case for most of the history of our country. If, if we lived today in Yemen or Somalia or Nigeria or, or Pakistan, or Vietnam, North Korea, obviously, uh, we would have a much, much better grasp of, of what the author is feeling as he's, as he's writing this prayer. We would, we would know what it feels like to be surrounded by people who despise us and who want to destroy, destroy us. We would have a sense of, of the fear that he's experiencing. But you don't, you don't have to uh, be there. We all know what fear feels like, right? Even people who don't know Christ, who don't... Um, who don't profess the faith, uh, they know what paralyzing fear looks like. I, I read uh, some years ago now an article, this is after Robin Williams, uh, the famous actor, had uh, tragically taken his life. And New, New York Times reporter David uh, Itzkoff reports that, uh, that Williams in his final year had, had been plagued with uh, just a cascading series of guilt and failure and fear. He was plagued with guilt over divorcing his second wife and leaving their two children. His career was, for all intents and purposes, over. Uh, he had been recently diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, and he was terrified. Uh, Billy Crystal is quoted in the article. Um, and he, he recounts a phone call that he had received from Robin Williams shortly after the diagnosis of Parkinson's. And Crystal says, I, I'd never heard him like that before. This was the boldest comedian and artist I ever met, but this was just a scared man. Uh, crushing guilt and encroaching death will do that to you. And so the experiences of anxiety and fear, it's common to man. And um, we know what it's like to pray a prayer of desperation. And Psalm 83 is a prayer of desperation, and we need to just sense the urgency, the, the pleading of it. And so we're going to begin just looking, as we look at verse 1, the, the desperation of this psalm. Oh God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still. Uh, Mark Vitato, uh, my former professor, an excellent professor at uh, Westminster in California, says the, the Hebrew text contains three synonymous negative imperatives. So do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace. Do not be still. And Fatato says the force of the verse could be captured by sheer repetition in English. Oh God, don't be silent. Don't be silent. Don't be silent. You, you, you get a sense of the desperation of the prayer, the pleading. God, please, please, please hear me. Help me. Don't remain silent. You can, you can just imagine an, an Israelite family and the father is praying for his family as the, uh, the threat of intimate attack is real and he's fearing for his, his family and his, the life of his children. God, don't be silent. Don't be silent. Hear an answer. And the, the seeming silence of God is set in dramatic tension in the, in the prayer against the the roaring of the surrounding nations. Verse 2, behold, your enemies make an uproar. 
Those who hate you have raised their heads. The, the wolves are circling. They're, they're, they're howling, and, and God seems to be removed. That, that's the context. Have you ever been there where you're in great need, and you're praying to God, but he doesn't seem to hear, he doesn't seem to be answering? That's where the psalmist is writing. It's a fearful and painful place to be. So what do you do when you're in a great crisis of some sort? Maybe it's a crisis of conscience, maybe a crisis, crisis of, of health, or some, some threat, and, and you're praying and God doesn't seem to hear. Well, the author just lays out the trouble before the Lord. In verses 2 through 8, uh, particularly 3 through 8, that's what he does. He brings it to God and, and expresses, this, Lord, this is what's happening. And, and what's happening is that the, the writer talks about the fact that Israel is surrounded by enemies. He lists um, these, these nations that, have, that are consulting together and conspiring together. They're, they're, they're joining forces uh, to attack and overthrow Israel. Uh, Israel, if you remember, um, was this little nation there along the Mediterranean Sea. If you, if you just imagine, you know, Israel, this is Israel. doesn't look like Israel, I know. But, but um, you'll have on the, on the west, you'll have the Mediterranean Sea, and all around are enemy nations. So to the south, you have Edom and Amalek, okay, um, sworn enemies of Israel. And then if you come up here, you've got Moab, you go a little farther, you've got the Ammonites, come up to the north uh, corner up here, you've got the uh, Assyrians, Asher, he calls it in the text. So that's the great nation of Assyria. Then you have Tyre over here along the northern sea. Down here in the southwest, you've got Philistia. And so all the way around, you've got enemies. The only place you don't have an enemy is the Mediterranean Sea, but you can't swim, and you don't have a navy. I mean, this is like uh, Israel being pressed up against the Red Sea in Moses' day, and Pharaoh's army is approaching. That's where the writer senses uh, he is. That's where Israel finds herself. Now, those, those nations weren't constantly attacking. There, there were times of peace, but the the plight of Israel is that though the outbreaks of violence are sporadic, the hatred is constant. The settled purpose of the surrounding nations we have in verse 4, they say, come let us wipe them out as a nation, let the name of Israel be remembered no more. And when those nations would gather their forces, as from time to time they would do, you can read about such an occasion in Second Chronicles 20, they were vastly superior. Uh, Jehoshaphat prays in 2 Chronicles 20, Lord, we are powerless against this great horde. We don't know what to do. That's the reality Israel found itself in. Now, we're not told of a specific threat here in this psalm, and the, and, and the fact that we're not reminds us that, um, well, God's people have always lived in a relationship of of, of conflict and oppression with the world, right? Ever, ever since uh, the beginning when Cain murders Abel, there has been animosity, enmity, where God says, right? I, he said to Eve, I'm going to put enmity between the seed of the woman and the serpent. And so you have the kingdom of darkness and you have the kingdom of God and these kingdoms have never been at peace. The kingdom of darkness is constantly um, seeking to overthrow and destroy the kingdom of light. And that hatred uh, shows up from time to time in bold relief. For instance, 
Uh, you think about Pharaoh, who sought to wipe out the Israelite nation by having all Israeli male children drowned in the Nile. It's, just, it's one generation, and they don't exist anymore. Or you have the story of Haman in the book of Esther, who planned a genocide of all Jews. And so that, that, that violence is always just under the surface, awaiting to break out. And so the, 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 the breakouts are sporadic. The hatred is always there. And it continues today, doesn't it? Reports are that over 5,500, some say 5,500, some say 6,000 Christians were killed this year just for their faith. The number is going up every year. I read a story this week about a, um, a Christian man named Khalid who left the Muslim faith uh, on September um, 11, 2001, when he saw the joy that um, people had in killing Others, in the name of Allah, he, he left the Muslim faith and he began reading a Bible and he became a Christian. And uh, his wife, um, when she saw the radical change in his life, particularly how he became so much more loving and patient and kind towards her and the, and the kids, uh, she became a Christian too. Well, that, of course, immediately made them uh, the objects of scorn and derision and hatred in their community, their Muslim community. They received death threats. And in 2014, one of those threats became a reality, and this man's wife was killed. Since then, Khalid and his three children have struggled to move forward. He was quoted in this article saying, we are a team that is playing without a very key player, and we are very, very tired. The attack is momentary, but the opposition is constant, and Khalid is weary beyond words. That's a reality that we have so, so many of our brothers and sisters around the world uh, live in that, in that reality. Well, in Psalm 83, uh, the psalmist brings this to God's attention and asks God to act. And this is where we need to think very carefully and pay attention uh, because many people reject Christianity precisely because of psalms like Psalm 83. And they, and they read this and it sounds to them just like what the Muslims are doing uh, in, in wishing vengeance on the enemies of Allah. So, so let's just hear it carefully, but, but we need to, um, the petition is what it is. Verses 9, do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor and became dung for the ground. Verse 13, oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, as fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountain ablaze. So pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. That's strong language, and, and, and the writer uh, is not apologizing for it. What, what, notice what he's doing is he's, he's asking God to intervene as God had in the past. So when he uh, re talks about Midian, uh, boys and girls, maybe you remember the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 7, where uh, Gideon and his 300 men are able by the power of God, right, to, to conquer the Midianite army. God, God won that battle for them. Sisera and Jabin, uh, we read about in Judges chapter 4, where under the leadership of Deborah, God intervened and once again rescued Israel. So this is the story of God's um, redemptive acts, saving acts for, for Israel in the past. And, and the writer is just saying, Lord, do it again. We, we, need, we need that again. Now again, to New Testament ears and to modern ears, uh, this sounds problematic. I mean, 
doesn't Jesus say that we're supposed to love our enemies and do good to them? Doesn't he say that? And the answer is yes. Jesus does say exactly that. Luke 6, uh, verse 27. So how are we to make sense of what Jesus commands us to do in Luke 6 and what we have here in Psalm 83? Well, I, I read an article uh, this week um, where um, Dr. Bob Godfrey, again, a former professor, wonderful brother and um, father in the faith, really, was, he was asked about this. Um, shouldn't we renounce this? Can Christians, are Christians allowed to talk like this? And, and he made some excellent points. Uh, Godfrey first pointed out that while we are to pray for our enemies as Jesus commands, we are also to pray against God's enemies. So when we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, we are praying for Jesus Christ to exercise his authority and his rule and to bring righteousness and life and peace to reign completely in all that is evil and all that is wrong and the devil himself and all who belong to him to be destroyed. That's, that's the prayer. That's the Lord's prayer. The prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Lord, destroy the kingdom of darkness and bring your kingdom. So, so God first says we, we pray that. But notice he says... So while we pray for, for, for our enemies, we at the same time pray for, against God's enemies. He says God's people in the Old Testament were not encouraged to just randomly curse people. The imprecations of the Psalter are directed against the enemies of God and His purposes and His people. And if you notice in Psalm 83, if you have it open, that's exactly how the writer speaks. Notice verse 2, behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their head. They, verse 3, they lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. Verse 5, they conspire with one accord against you, they make a covenant. You see, this is not petty vindictiveness, uh, this isn't even primarily about the safety of Israel as a nation state. This is, this is a recognizing there's a conflict between the nations of the world and God. That the world is, is, is set in opposition to God. We talked about that this morning when Paul says that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Psalm 2 talks about this very, very thing. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And of course, that's exactly what's going on in our world today. Um, this is, Psalm 2 was one of the favorite psalms of the early church, as they saw the nations raging against the church of Jesus Christ. So that, that's what this conflict is about. It, it's not just about our personal uh, agenda. It, it, it's about God vindicating his holy name. But someone might push back and say, okay, but how is that different from Muslims asking Allah to destroy his enemies? What's the difference? Well, it's a good question. It's a legitimate question. And there's a wonderful answer in, in the psalm. Notice that this is a prayer for repentance. Notice verse 16. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. 
It's a prayer for repentance. It's a prayer that the nations be converted. And so um, Godfrey again says, what you see in the Psalter when you read a number of Psalms together, almost always in relation to an imprecation is a prayer for repentance. So that the enemies are not just cursed, there's a prayer that they might repent. The prayer for judgment always comes on those who refuse to repent, on those who insist on being the enemies of God. The ultimate desire of the author here is not that the nations would be destroyed. His ultimate desire is that they would be converted, that they would repent, that they would turn and seek the face of the Lord. It's a wonderful prayer. And it reflects the heart of God himself, doesn't it? This is, this is the, God's people looking like their Father in heaven. God says in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, for instance, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. That's God's disposition towards our sinful world. God's desire is that people should repent and live, that people should seek his face. And we have wonderful invitations throughout Scripture to that end. For instance, Isaiah 55, where God says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Isn't that a wonderful invitation? It's, it's a free gift, God is saying. Free grace. Free forgiveness. The free gift of righteousness given to those who confess their sin. The wages of sin is death, right? Romans 6, 23. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a wonderful, wonderful gospel truth that is. I, uh, I, I, I talked in a sermon uh, years ago now about... Um, Robin Williams, and that happened back in 2014. Someone sent me an email who had just heard the sermon online. He was, I think, from Maine, and, um, and sent me an email that week saying that he had a friend of his, a friend of his was a pastor, a Baptist pastor in Florida, who had been in conversations with Robin Williams in the weeks before he died. Let me just read what this man said to me. He said, just prior to his death, Williams contacted a friend of mine, a retired pastor, uh, in Florida, who runs a book service. One of William's friends had purchased one of these old uh, Puritan and Reformed reprints, so uh, an old uh, Puritan book, gave it to Williams, who was very much affected by it. He asked my, uh, my pastor friend repeatedly about forgiveness in Christ and if this was genuine and something definitive. He had been through everything psychology had to offer and wanted some form of proof that he could be forgiven. I think that's so telling. After a career of tasting everything the world has to offer, fame, pleasure, power, wealth, at the end of the day, the one burning existential question in Robin Williams' life was this, is it possible to be forgiven? Is it possible to be forgiven? Unfortunately, he was not able to believe it was. And yet the Bible rings with the message. It is absolutely possible to be forgiven. Jesus Christ died for sinners 
And, the, and, and God promises those who come, those who seek the Lord. Listen diligently to me, we read in Isaiah 55. Eat what is good, delight yourself in rich food, incline your ear and come to me, hear me that your soul may live. This is God's desire for our world, friends. This is God's passion for the world. He, he grieves. Uh, Jesus, remember, wept over Jerusalem at, the, at their stubborn unbelief and the judgment that was coming upon them. And I would just say, if you've never accepted and received God's invitation, God's inviting you this very day. Today, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near, the Bible says. Let the wicked man forsake his ways and the evil man his thoughts and let him turn to our God for he will abundantly pardon. That's the promise of Scripture. And we can go to any man and woman we meet on the street or at work or wherever our lives take us and we can hold that invitation out to every single one. If you confess your sin and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, you will be saved. And that's God's desire. But there is a message here for those who refuse that invitation. Let them, verse 17, be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord of the Most High over all the earth. Notice again that the ultimate goal here isn't punishment. The ultimate goal here is the vindication of God's holy name. Right? That they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. The, 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 the writer's passion here is that God be acknowledged to be God. The one living, true God, maker of heaven and earth. And that Jesus Christ is God the Son come in the flesh. And that Jesus Christ, having died for sinners, having been raised to life, is now seated at the right hand of God, all authority and power belonging to him. The writer's passion is that the nations would see it and confess it and acknowledge it, even if it's unwilling that God would be vindicated as God, that Jesus would be vindicated as the great Savior of sinners and the King of kings. That's a New Testament thought. Right? Paul writes in Philippians 2, the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We should be unashamed to tell people who refuse to repent, brother, sister, friend, Jesus wins. You can, go to, you can go head to head, you have at it, but you need to know Jesus wins. Jesus reigns. But once again, you see, the beauty of the, of the Scripture and the beauty of the Gospel is that Jesus doesn't win, first of all, by destroying his foes. Jesus wins, first of all, by dying for them. If you ask the question, how is the Christian message different from the Muslim message? How is this different from the, than the Muslim praying that Allah would, would vindicate himself against all his enemies? Well, God has judged sin not by destroying sinners, but by destroying his son, first and foremost. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's the, it's the most radical difference imaginable. You see, Allah never loved like this. Muslim, devout Muslim fathers send their sons into battle to die for Allah. The living God sent his own son to this world to die for sinners, to rescue us, to save us. 
Behold what manner of love. And yet this is exactly what God has done. Paul says this is a trustworthy statement, uh, saying worthy of full acceptance that Jesus Christ died for sinners of whom I am chief. That Jesus Christ, our precious Savior, came to, to bear our sin. He came to die in our place. He came so that we could receive by faith alone the free gift of forgiveness, the free gift of life. Oh, I wish, I wish Robin Williams had been able to believe it. That after he'd wasted his life and all the things, I, wish, I so wish that he'd been able to believe the simple gospel truth. But you know, there's, there's people all around us who need to believe that simple gospel truth. There might be people here tonight, you might have been in church all your life, and you still have not been able to receive this beautiful gospel truth that Jesus came to be your Savior, that you can be freely, freely forgiven, and not only made right with God, but forever loved by God. And we have people all around us who need to hear the message. You see, friends, God did hear the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 83, and God did answer that prayer. He did not remain silent, did he? He sent his son, the word, the word of God. This is my son, listen to him. God is speaking to us even today through Jesus Christ and through the word that he's given to us. God is talking, he's not silent. And it's our call then to hear, to believe, to be saved, to share. May God grant, right, that the gospel flourishes in our own hearts, that the gospel flourishes in this community, the gospel flourishes in this nation, that the gospel flourishes so that the nations are gathered together in the presence of Jesus Christ. That's the heart of Christ. It must be the heart of the church. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, I thank you so much that you are God who has not remained silent, but you have spoken to us in your son, Jesus Christ. And you've spoken a message of such beautiful grace. We thank you that Jesus Christ has conquered where we have failed, where Adam failed. And we thank you that in Jesus' victory, we can enter in and by, by faith and faith alone, receive this precious gift of life and forgiveness, this precious reality of being found in Christ and belong to Christ and heirs with Christ. Father, we live in a community where there are people all around us who don't know this truth. They don't know that Jesus reigns. They don't know that Jesus came to die for them. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the missionary heart of God, that we would not be casual about those who are on their way to death. But, Lord, that our desire is that people would call upon your name and seek your face that your Holy Spirit would move with power and we would have the joy of seeing people drawn by the power of God to Jesus Christ and to everlasting life in him. And Father, if there are any here tonight who have never taken that step, I pray that your Spirit would move them, take them hand in hand to the foot of the cross and there to see Jesus, their Savior and their Lord. We thank you that this Jesus who loved us and gave his life for us is now reigning over this whole world and that we can trust ourselves to him. We pray, Lord, that um, give us peace. May all fear be removed. Give us joy. Give us hope in believing. We'll give you the thanks in Jesus' name.
Amen. We're going to sing a hymn together just acknowledging and celebrating that Jesus reigns. Our God is the Ancient of Days. That's how Jesus describes himself in the book of Revelation. And he reigns. Let's stand together and sing.
God's people said. Amen. And now as you go into the mission field, uh, with the grace of God, receive his blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of that sweet Holy Spirit, be and abide with you all, till Christ come again. Amen.